There was a, a young lady that I knew when I was in campus ministry that I'll call Charlotte. That's not her real name. And she was dating a young man by the name of John, which is also not his real name. But the difference in this relationship was is they were dating long distance. Now, I don't know how much you remember about being in college or before, but long distance relationships, they come with their own special challenges. And on this particular occasion, I got a call one sort of mid-morning from John, who was in a panic because he and Charlotte had just had a giant, massive fight the night before. As it turns out, John was out the night before with some friends. And while he was out with those friends, some of which ended up being girls, someone saw them out and informed Charlotte that John was out with someone else. Dun, 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 dun. The drama started. Well, of course, a huge fight ensued on the phone, right? You know, of course, you know, Charlotte wants to know what was going on. John told her the truth, which was nothing was going on. Uh, he got mad because she doesn't trust him. Uh, and then, of course, she got angry because she's just so tired of the distance. Just frustrating. So he sits in my office, just you know, bleeding all this out, and I'm trying to be as understanding as you can possibly be to someone who's in that level of panic. But at one point during the conversation, I'll never forget this, he stopped and he goes, that's it. I'm going. And I said, you're going where? He said, I'm going to go see her. And I said, okay, John, that's nine hours away. She's not, I don't care. I'm going. And so the kid gets in his car and drives nine hours. Don't you remember the days when you could actually get away with something that romantic, men? They're like, I would just have an accident on the way back. That's all that would happen. But does it ever occur to you that there are really few things sort of more instinctual when you're dealing with any human relationship than that sort of nagging question of whether or not things between me and this person are doing okay? And in many ways, it doesn't even matter the past good relationship that you might have had. Has there been anything that's happened since our time that our relationship began that might actually threaten what we have now? Are we okay? You ask friends this sometimes. Like, are we okay? It seems like you've been a little irritated lately. Well, if we feel that sort of burden of insecurity where we'd get in a car and drive nine hours just to make sure things were okay, maybe we can understand why it is that Paul, now that he has sort of unpacked this incredible new way of relating to God in this idea of justification that is outside of any sort of merit on our own, he then turns his attention in chapter 5 to the question of, but how can I know? In other words, all that sounds really good, Les, as a way to start my life as a Christian, but I'm kind of wondering about how things go as I go along, because frankly, there's days where I wake up and I think, I don't think there's any way that he could be patient with me today. Not after what happened yesterday. Not after what I did last week. Well, Paul comes in and says, I want you to know that the salvation that Jesus afforded for us on the cross is not just for something that happened in the past, but it's something that's actually going to continue on into the future. Paul is talking about a doctrine that theologians like to refer to as the doctrine of assurance. Assurance of my salvation. And quite frankly, I don't think, since I've been ordained some 25 years or so, that I've had a more regular topic of conversation with the people I've had a chance to talk to than this question. 
How do I know? Can I know? How can I know that I still stand in God's good graces, in His favor? How do I know that the things that I've been involved in this week could leave me with any sense of hope about my future? Well, Paul gives us three things I would submit to you in Romans chapter 5 that I think will help us understand Christian assurance. He talks about the reality of assurance. Number two, he talks about the logic of assurance. And then number three, he talks about the change that only comes from an assured life. Those are my three words, okay? The reality, the logic, and the change. Let's dive into this. So in verses 1 through 2, Paul is basically saying that if you have been justified, your entire perspective on life has been changed. Your past, your present, and your future. And he lays them out in that order. What's the first thing that he says? He says, first of all, since you have been justified, you have peace with God. He's talking about your past. Now look, notice what he's actually not saying there. Paul is not saying that this, that this um, justification that Jesus sort of uh, got for us won for us uh, the, the peacefulness of God. You know, the, the, the peaceful, easy feeling of Eagle's 70s soft rock thing. Even though that may be the case, are the eagles soft rock? Does that insult the sort of um, old school sort of... (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) But it's not the peaceful, easy feeling he's talking about. What he's saying is that word peace there is actually a military term. Where he's saying the peace that I'm talking about is the peace that has been established by the fact that you and God are no longer at war. It is a military peace that has been won by justification between you and God. Now look, that ought to be immediately good news for people that hear it, but so often it's not. And when you begin to wonder why, you begin to realize that there's an essential component to really grasping your justification that is wrapped up in this idea that until you really grasp that, yes, before I was a Christian... My behavior, my posture towards God, though I might have looked at it as been like, well, you know, there's some rough spots in my life, but I I wasn't at war with God. That from his perspective was actually quite that. That from God's perspective, even the small little peccadillos as we describe them are infinite offenses against him that he views as enmity between us and them. And again, you have this culture sort of rising up and being like, you know, there y'all go again. (laughs) God's at war with people. Do you really, honestly, are you really going to be that kind of church less where you're up there sort of laying another guilt trip on people about their sin? But I always found that objection kind of curious whenever I would hear it from people because it strikes me that the only reason why we're sort of highlighting the struggle of man's sin, if it's a reality, is so that we can talk about God's redemption of it. Imagine for a moment that you're sitting in your accountant's office. It's, it's, it's early April, and you're ready to sort of look at the bad news that year of your tax burden. And the accountant sort of does that thing that you never want to see an accountant do. He gets that sort of uh, that wincing face. He sucks air through his teeth. Like, and you're like, what? He says, well, I've got some bad news. Through some mismanagement on your own part, it looks like you're out about ten grand for this year's tax burden. So the panic sets in, you go into a depression, you know, you start to talk about how much could I get for these children if I sell them. (laughs) You feel horrible. But later on that week, someone walks up to you with a check for the exact amount that you need. and says, I want to offer this to you. Wouldn't it be really strange to look at that and be like, ah, there you go again. 
you know, take that check away. All that does is remind me of how stupid I was about this whole tax burden. You'd be like, uh, I think you missed the point. Like, I'm, I'm going to help to pay that thing off. Which is how I always feel when people get so upset that Christians kind of still want to talk about the sinfulness of sin. Because without it, you don't have the graciousness of grace. Uh, I've actually been working these last couple of weeks on our fall series through the book of Luke. And by the time we get to chapter 7, we're going to come up to a great little story that Jesus tells about what it's like to understand being forgiven. And at one point, he does this little throwaway comment by saying, you know, if you've been forgiven little, then you love little. But when you're forgiven much, you love much. And what Paul is saying is, is the joy that comes from knowing that now the war between you and God is over is a great joy because it really was a war. So our past has been resolved. But then secondly, he says our present has been resolved as well. This one's kind of a quick one. He says, why? By giving us access into what we were created to be. Here's his phrase. He says, we have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. In other words, a Christian looks at his life in the same way that a a fish looks at his life when he's been let back in the water. Finally, now I know why I'm here. Now I know what I'm doing here. Because prior to, we talked about last week, I just felt like my life was out of joint. I had no place And what we've said is, is that those are just memory traces. Even when someone who's not religious at all experiences those memory traces in their own heart, it's God looking and saying, you've lost a place to stand. That's what Paul is saying. Now, the present is, I have a grace in which I stand, that I stand in. And that means that you now have standing, we oftentimes say, with the God of the universe. So our past is resolved, our present is resolved, but so is our future, he says. Look what he says. He says, because we have uh, rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in hope. My assumption is you've heard preacher types like myself talk about that word hope. That oftentimes in our day, we don't have a strong version of that word. We think of hope as like crossed fingers. I really hope this happens. But the Greek word is a stronger word. A hope there is more like a conviction or a certainty. In other words, justification comes and brings about... Not something that you're just crossing your fingers, you know, this time I really think that I have hope. No. We have something that is rooted and certain because of what Jesus has done for us. One of my favorite illustrations about this comes from Hebrews chapter 11. um, Excuse me, Hebrews chapter 6, where he's talking, the, the writer of the book of Hebrews is talking about an anchor. Listen to what he says in verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A Hope, same word, that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone. I love that illustration, an anchor. Anchor is interesting. If you think about it, an anchor is not really the thing that makes your boat safe, is it? The anchor really is not the thing. The thing that makes your boat safe when you're on an ocean are the rocks below that the anchor connects yourself connects you to. Well, the hope that Jesus brings is not about getting fixated on the hope But it's the mechanism by which we will understand the rocks below. Because here we are up on the top of the the water, if you will, to wear this metaphor out. We're on the top of the water. Typically what what we're praying for is for a change in our circumstances. Now what we get fixated on when we think about our future, man, if I just had a better job. Man, if he or she would just get their act together. Man, if my children would just start to act right. 
man, if they would just say they loved me. We, we pray about our circumstances. And what Paul is saying is, is you don't have to worry about those circumstances because you can pray beyond your abilities, beyond your fears, into the reality of what your justification is. That's what our hope connects us to. So that's the reality. Paul says this is the reality of our situation. And we have to know that if we're going to work through the logic, secondly, of our assurance of salvation. Verses 6 through 10 are kind of a simple little uh, section here in this passage, but a really profound point. And if the, the more you work through it, the better it gets, I've noticed. Think of what Paul is trying to do for you. He's trying to get us in the midst of our difficulties to stop and call a time out. Stop for a second. Think about this for a moment. When you begin to feel the most fearful that you have now outstriped and outsinned God's grace and justification... Stop and sit down and redo the calculus. And what is the calculus? It goes like this. It simply says, look, think about it. If God put His love on you when you were at war with Him, now that He's made you His friend, why would He not complete that? In other words, in other words like if God was able to do you know, comparatively the giant task of dealing with you when you were shaking your fist at him, now that he's actually brought you into the family, how much more secure could you be now that he's crossed that particular bridge? You see the logic there? This is incredibly powerful. And you begin to realize that one of the reasons why it doesn't strike me is because I never really thought I really was shaking my fist at him. Back to our first point. But all of a sudden, Paul is saying, look, but once you grasp this sort of thing, you begin to realize that you now know how to speak against that incessant feeling that Christians often have, that, that this time, I've done it. I've outsinned this favor. But look, there is no such thing as a Christian who has not been justified, and there is no such thing as a justified person who is not eternally secure. Justification is of a sort that even my wretched heart can't mess it up. Now that's beautiful. The logic of assurance Which brings me to the last point, and that is the change that comes about in assurance. Verse 11 says that we rejoice in God through Jesus by whom we have received reconciliation. The main change that happens in a justified person is that they rejoice in God. That's the phrase. And this results in an entirely new way of dealing with your life. And this was the moment where I suddenly stopped. And that, was, and that was when you would hear preacher types like myself begin to talk about, now look, now here's the change that justification brings. I would get nervous. And frankly, it's not all my fault. Because preacher types like myself tend to always talk about like evidences of salvation in terms of your, of your personal piety. That is, we begin to talk about how often you read your Bible. How often you pray. But those things, and of course those are wonderful things, the problem is those are means of grace, not the ends of grace. The change that justification brings is far more better rooted in your heart that those things can feed and not be ends in themselves. What am I talking about? Let me throw out a few. I actually have six of these, but they're real quick. Don't don't panic. Number one, justification, when it roots inside you, gives an entirely new approach to suffering. A brand new approach to suffering. You see, suffering before 
used to feel like I was being punished. You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever gotten that feeling when things are going really bad and you're being like, what did I do? Like, why has God somehow set a target on my back that every bad thing that could possibly happen to a human is happening to me? Justification comes along and relieves you of that sensation because it says there's no way that this could be punishment. You want to know why? Because every ounce of punishment that he had was poured out on his son, Jesus. There's nothing left. What does this suffering must be? Well, it must be surgery. God's not some cosmic Shylock demanding a pound of flesh. What is he? He's a surgeon who is carefully and skillfully working things through for me so that he can make me what he wants me to be. That's a totally different way of looking at suffering. Secondly, justification begins to give you a way to heal your past. Because basically, life comes along and and has a way of issuing verdicts. I heard somebody say this a while back. I think it's profound. Have you noticed that the events of your life tend to issue verdicts against you? Judgments about whether you are worthwhile or whether you stink. And over and over again, you pile up a lifetime of those negative verdicts against us, and it can destroy us. They're rising up in us, and they're condemning us, especially our mistakes. But justification comes in and overturns those verdicts and says that's not what those events in your past mean. That's not what it means. <clears throat> I've been struggling with even to use this illustration because I want to be very delicate. There was, uh, I had a conversation years ago with a young lady who had experienced um, so, some sexual abuse that I won't even go into this morning in her past as, as the smallest child. She was eight or nine years old, and there was a season of her life where she was repeatedly abused. Uh, um, and it wasn't until college, as often happens, when some of the the stuff from that began to surface in her heart. Now, please, listen. I'm closing my eyes before I make any eye contact. Sexual abuse is not something to be taken lightly. And I've heard a lot of well-meaning people come back and say, Les, you Christians sound too glib. And you act like there's this simple little wave of the hand that makes all this better. And I want you to know I'm not doing that. But I am saying this. And at the moment of this conversation, this woman said something to this effect. She said, you know, Les... Those years of my life used to have a meaning for me. And that meaning was, this is what she said was, she goes, that meaning was that I, I, I was dirty. I was soiled. Who would ever love me having been through that? She goes, but I hear what you're trying to tell me because you're trying to tell me that that's not what those events meant now. What those things meant was is that I live in a broken world and can't begin to grapple with until I own that. Is that right? Look, I'm not trying to belittle what you went through. It's a horrific blackness that sexual abuse inflicts upon people. But justification comes even in the midst of that kind of inky blackness and fires a shaft of light. Maybe it's just a shaft of light that might give you the hope that, you know what, this was not your fault. This was not your fault. Thirdly, we begin to, when we discover a new character flaw in ourselves, we don't actually look and suddenly feel like we're on the outs with God. Quite the opposite, it makes us feel closer to Him. Closer to Him because of a character flaw? How can that be? You want to know why? Because you suddenly realize, wait a minute, He died for that too. Wow, that's amazing. Jesus died for that as well. So even your character flaws end up becoming something that actually can be a benefit to you and draw you closer to Him. 
How about another one? What about when you blow it, like big time? Like that thing you said you'd never do, you did, and you did it again. You know, before, you used to sort of try to answer your conscience with your performance. Uh, well, you know, I, I was having a bad day. Things weren't going very well that day. Oh, you know, I was under a lot of pressure. No. Justification, once it gets in, comes in you and says, you know what, even if I hadn't done that thing that I did, there was no way God could love me more. No way. Because His blood would cover a thousand worlds filled with the people a thousand times worse than me. That's a change. Fifth, it helps us face criticism. You know, before you got super defensive. This is totally unfair. Who are you? You We pivot, right? Well, who are you to be telling me? Are you defensive when someone confronts you? Because when justification kind of gets in your heart and someone confronts something about you, your natural instinct ought to be to be like, ooh, boy, they don't know the half of it. If you were actually down here, you, you know as much. <laughs> plenty more where that came from, I promise you. That's what justification brings us. Boy, men, mm, men, this is one of ours. <laughs> I'm going to suck the air through my teeth. This is not one of ours. We're not very good at this. Are you confrontable? Have you stopped and gone down to your defensiveness and asked what that is? And maybe the reason why you're so defensive is that little justification shell that you built for yourself is pretty fragile. Finally, we know how to face our own death. I turned 50 back in December, and I remembered a therapist friend of mine one time telling me that your 40s are the time when you begin to think of yourself, I'm going to die. Something to look forward to, people in your 30s. Um, why did I come to church this morning? I don't know. Um, but you know, many of you know I lost my dad about five years ago. And there's just something about sitting in that hospital room and thinking to yourself, I don't have a choice. I'm going to be in this place. And you begin to ask yourself the question, what is going to console me in that moment? What am I going to go to at that moment? Only justification gives us a way to process that with health. So here's my question. How are you processing life? What are you building? What are you standing upon? What is the standing of your assurance built upon? Thinking about this reminded me of of an interesting story that C.H. Spurgeon, the great Baptist uh, pastor of the late 1800s, told one time about a young pastor who, you know, left his parish one morning determined to evangelize the very first person that he met. (laughs) So he goes down to the docks and he finds an elderly woman who has a large, you know, burden full of fish on her shoulders. And the preacher walks up to her and says, I I see that you have have a burden on your back. Is it possible that you also have a spiritual burden? For whatever it's worth, I will never ask you a question like that ever. <laughs> but, but, but never mind. Well, the old woman looks up at the young preacher and says, Well, are you talking about that burden uh, in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress? Because, yes, I got rid of that years ago. Well, I don't know how much you remember about that story, that sort of famous allegory of the Christian, li- of the Christian life. But there's a character who is just totally guilt-ridden named Christian who is looking for a way to unburden his guilt, which is pictured by this huge burden on the man's shoulder. Well, along his travels, he meets someone that Bunyan calls evangelist. And he asks him what he should do. And evangelist says, look, what you should do is, is you should race towards the wicket gate. Head towards there, and then you'll know what to do. And of course, on his journey there, he meets lots of characters. But at one point, he meets the slew of despond. Remember the slew of despond? And while he's there, he gets caught in this miry, muddy sort of uh, period of guilt and despair. 
But the old lady to this young little preacher actually wanted to take issue with that evangelist's advice. She said, you know, that evangelist in John Bunyan talks about uh, was one of your preachers who actually do not preach the gospel. Because he said, oh, keep your light in your eye and run towards the wicked gate. Why? Man alive, that was not the place that he should have run to. He should have said, do you see that cross? Run to that at once. But instead, he sent that poor pilgrim to the wicked gate first, and a whole lot of good he got from going there. He got himself tumbling into the slough and was almost killed by it. Well, the young preacher was rather abashed and deeply concerned. But did you not, the young man asked, go through any time of guilt and despair through the slough of despond? And she said, yes, I did. But I found it a great deal easier going through it with my burden off than with it still on. That's a better illustration than you know. You'll think about it this afternoon. It gets better. What what is Spurgeon saying? Spurgeon's saying, look, if Bunyan was trying to describe what often happens, that someone kind of wakes up one day and someone looks and says, all right, you've been getting away from God. You know, why don't you return back to God? And you're like, okay, I will go to church. Church becomes the wicked gate. Now look, I want you to come to church, of course. But suddenly, is the cross somewhere down the line from that? Because what this lady is trying to instruct and what Spurgeon is trying to say through the lady is, no, the first thing you say to people is go to the cross. Deal with that burden first. Unbosom thy mind to the lamb, the hymn writer says. That's got to be the beginning, the middle, and the end of every aspect of the Christian life. So what is it? (laughs) How have you dealt with your burden? Because if you're anything like me... (laughs) Every time you lay that thing down, just give me a couple days. I'm going to pick it back up again. We're all in Arminian withdrawal. That is, we decided that God saved us by His grace, but then afterwards we're going to finish it by ourselves. Pick that burden right back up and load it back on our shoulders. But look, this is why the hymn writer says, look, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him and Him alone Gloriously complete. So, are you in your Christian life, are you struggling to be free from sin? Or are you free to struggle with sin? If you're asking yourself, what's the difference? I think you ought to think about that. Because it has to do with the, the miraculous transformation that only justification by grace through faith can bring. And it becomes the center of someone's life. And change comes from there outward, does it not? Let's pray. Then Lord Jesus, in whatever way we know how, help us to lay our deadly doing down. Help us, Father, to stand in you. Help us to see something different, a way of looking that's unique from what we've always thought. Father, we will run to the cross even this morning, even those who have done it a thousand times. We even sing that song, if thou hast drawn a thousand times, oh Lord, draw me again. Draw me near to you. Father, would you do that for us this morning? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.